The Young Jerks are sponsored by UFCW 1445, a labor union representing cannabis employees in Massachusetts. Currently, UFCW is holding a union election at NETA New England Treatment Access in Brookline, as well as at Mayflower. If you are a cannabis employee worried about your health and safety and are not being heard at work, call the union at UFCW local 1445.org or call them at 1-800-439-1445. It's Grant Smith here with the Young Jerks. Not that I've been broadcasting for over four and a half hours today or anything. Uh, it's been quite a long day. Uh, we started at 9.30 a.m. this morning with the amazing um, Devin Alexander from Rolling Relief, uh, Marion McNabb from the Cannabis Center of Excellence, and Ed D'Souza from River Run Gardens. We then did the uh, full four-hour-long Cannabis Control Commission hearing, and now the part of the day that I've been looking forward to the most. I have the opportunity to interview Shakia Scott, who uh, many of you may know, some of you may not. Uh, Shakia Scott is a Boston, Massachusetts native and the former Director of Community Outreach and Equity Program Programming at the State's Cannabis Control Commission. Within this position, Shakia focused on promoting the inclusion of communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, marijuana prohibition, arrest, and incarceration in the adult use marijuana industry. Shakia developed and introduced Massachusetts first in the nation statewide social equity program, providing technical assistance, training, and opportunity for entry into the industry across four areas with additional program benefits. Additionally, she co-founded the Boston Police Camera Action Team, which successfully introduced community influence policy and outfitted the Boston Police Department with body cameras. This led to her service as policy director and neighborhood liaison for Boston City Councilor and the first African-American woman president of the City Council, Andrea Campbell. This afternoon, I'm honored and privileged to welcome Shakia Scott to the Young Jerks. And Shakia, for those in our audience who do not like, uh, know you, uh, could you take some time and tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, and how you ended up as the social equity and community outreach directors at the CCC? Yes. Um, thank you, one, for having me. And hello to everyone watching. Um, a lot to share with you guys today. I don't know if I can add a lot more on to all the things that Grant just said. But um, I think one um, important thing to highlight is I got into the commission um, because of a commissioner that we all know and love. And I will say right now, protect her at all costs. Um, commissioner title um, when I was serving as policy director and neighborhood liaison within Councillor Andrea Campbell's office, um, Commissioner Title um, simultaneously in her own world was drafting equity policy. And she had the bright idea to send this to all of the Black, African-American, or people of color legislators or stakeholders at the city in the state level. And it so happened to come to my office in which I was the director of policy. Um, so it automatically came to my desk and I was asked to look it over and provide any feedback. And when I read it, I was like, oh my God, like this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I actually Snapchatted it and I was like, 
this is the kind of work that I want to do, right? And at that time, I had no idea that I was going to work in the commission and I had no plans to. Um, but as my um, office in the city council progressed and my boss became the city council president, the, the uh, role of the office changes. And um, at that time, I reached out to Commissioner Title and I said, hey, um, you know, I'm going to be um, changing um, my positions um, and I wanted to see if there were any policy oriented positions opening at the commission and she was just like well no but you know we will have some positions opening and you you should look on this link um, and I just waited and then I saw some um, uh, job positions opening and one of them was the director of community outreach and after reading it and seeing um, what the job description entailed I was like I can absolutely do this and I absolutely want to do this for sure um, and then I applied and it, it was it was uh, in the books from there um, and so uh, I know a lot of people have those kind of uh, stories and relationships with commissioner title so again protect her at all costs but that is how I ended up as the director of community outreach and the um, equity program um, Additionally, actually, as I got hired and I was in my role, um, Sean Collins, who is the um, executive director, um, and under his leadership, he pulled me to the side. And, you know, at this time, the public was really, really, really like, where are these programs? And it was like my second day. Um, and he was like, do you think you can run this program? And I was like, uh, absolutely. And he was just like, he said one key thing um, that's that spoke to me um, and resonated with me until this day. And he said, you know what? I feel like you will keep us in check about it. And I was like, okay, this guy knows me. Um, and he's he clearly understands that we are going to have to be kept in check and accountable about what we're doing. And he feels confident that I can do that. And so, um, you know, history started to be written. <laughs> Well, that, that actually segues almost perfectly in one, into what I wanted to ask you about first, funny enough, which is, so you talked, and I noticed this as well, you talked about how you actually came into the commission as the director of community outreach. But as you were mentioning, over time, your, your title shifted, you know, both publicly and I guess in your, in, internally into the director of the social equity program. So can you talk more about why that shift happened and what that sort of what what occurred there as you transitioned the role uh, from uh, director of community outreach to kind of a dual director of community outreach and director of the social equity program role? Yes. So I, I think this also will tie into a bigger um, conversation that we we're going to have. Um, but I think the shift comes in one, right, that this is a first in the nation program. So people automatically want to talk about it. They want to um, focus on it. They want to make sure it's doing what it's doing. So um, then when you put a face to that, you automatically assume, oh, that person's the director of this program. Um, but the as the director of community outreach, programming and overseeing and developing that was built into that job description. Um, but the focus was on outreach as a whole, um, meaning that when I do go out and do event planning and um, make uh, connections and build relationships with the stakeholders at all levels, um, 
I am doing outreach for the commission as a whole, not just to say, hey, we have this program and this is what it does, but to say, hey, we are the commission. This is how you reach us. This is what we do. And we have these programs for those who are disproportionately impacted. So when I first got there, I had this whole community outreach plan that I um, put together. I was going to do what I call the social equity tour around all of the disproportionately impacted cities and towns. Um, and then as the program kind of took precedence over everything, um, it, it's really just so much work that you can't do those in tandem. You cannot um, be a director of community outreach and a director of a program because there's so many background and tiny details that go into formulating a program, even just from the vision of what is the program going to be, um, that, that it takes up all of your time, especially as one person, right? Um, and so publicly, I think, um, the commission itself didn't put um, focus on those other things within the position. Um, and the public itself is just really concerned about this program and what is it gonna do? When is it gonna be ready? How is it gonna help people? And and let's get it going. So I, I think it was just um, natural, but it was also on both, you know, on our end to say, no, this is what this position does in tandem with these programming uh, or, or this program. Um, and, and that's how, you know, that narrative took place. But I think it speaks to a bigger topic of siloing equity into this one program. Um, and, and even as we continue to talk, I might do it myself because I'm so used to just talking strictly about the social equity program, even though we did and I've uh, hosted um, events on behalf of the commission. I've partnered with the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce to do a fun event. Um, we've, we've, we've held um, a lot, I've, or I've participated in a lot of um, conventions and conferences where we have booths and I speak to people but all of that you know gets shoved to the side and it's like this program this program this program um but that that just speaks like i said to us kind of just pigeonholing and then siloing equity of itself into the social equity program um which is a which is a, a bigger issue um than it may present itself to be well thank you that's a really clarifying perspective and it, it presents the issue in a way I hadn't even really thought about. So in some ways, um, I get the sense that you're saying that the commission's equity mission, in your view, has a broader prerogative than any given implementation. So, um, and you, I, what I hear you saying is that outreach is a crucial component of that sort of overarching equity structure. So am, am I hearing you that that being siloed into any given program almost undermines the outreach and equity mission on the whole is that is that what you're is that what i'm hearing absolutely um and i and i don't think any one program you do yourself a disservice right when you're just focused on it and i i understand the focus on it because it is the um well we have we have economic empowerment but economic empowerment was a small window it opened it closed and there was that, um, but it, it also took away from when we focus on the social equity program, focusing on the economic empowerment applicants, right, and their needs as well. It just shifts completely into this one program. What is this going to do? And it, and it kind of makes it seem like this one program is going to be a one size all 
fit a one size all uh, solution that will solve all of our equity problems and no programming. You cannot um, fix or provide reparative justice with programs. You just cannot do it. Programs, training, we've seen those things done over centuries um, in, in terms of trying to address address uh, racism or bias or disproportionately impacted communities by the war on drugs. And those things just provide band-aids or little aids um, along the way that don't, you have to have a collaborative um, and more expansive effort um, that doesn't just focus on programming. Well, thank you. And that actually segues into so many areas that I, that I want to talk to you about, but I also want to make sure that we do give um, some weight to the fact that I think there's a recognition that, especially uh, Commissioner Title brought this up last week at a public meeting, the social equity program, although it's only one component, is not funded enough. And right. I'm very interested in your thoughts as to what happened uh, over the past few weeks. Our viewers, I'm sure, uh, will have seen uh, have seen our coverage, but for those who, ha who have not, um, last week, Commissioner Title at a public uh, Cannabis Control Commission hearing brought up that there's a bill in, in, at the legislature, it's been there for a year or so, uh, that would allow a mechanism in law for the Cannabis Control Commission to, to, uh, uh, to spend enforcement fines and um, money from PIPs, positive impact plans, to fund the internal social equity program. And part of, I think, what you're saying is that the reason why some of these jobs are, are being juggled by one person is that there's not enough support in some sense monetarily. So what are your thoughts on Commissioner Title's request that I thought was very reasonable that the commission write a letter to lawmakers asking them to provide this mechanism to spend enforcement fines and positive impact plan donations on the internal social equity program. And what did you think of the pushback she got from some of her colleagues on that? Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely correct. I, I think that um, the push for more resources and more funding is absolutely necessary, but internally in the commission, the push for that is necessary because I think when you hear the word commission, right, you think hundreds of people working on this major thing when it's really like um, at the beginning, it was like six to eight of us when I came on um, and now upwards of uh, 70, but those those individuals fill out other departments that don't, um, are, that are not over the equity program. Um, so I thought Commissioner Title's ask was very small. It's it, not saying that she should have asked for more. I meant in terms of the idea of what the ask was. It wasn't asking the commission to actually put the fines there. It was saying, hey, can we just write a letter to request this? Um, because one, our social equity program, um, uh, budget itself was $300,000 and it has been that since the commission has been founded since 2017. I have pushed to ask, um, can this be increased? And, you know, when you first do something, you know, there has to be some type of metrics that uh, the government wants to weigh it against and say, okay, yeah, we should increase it. But we did successfully 
um, create a first cohort program. And um, if you've talked, and I know you have, but if you talk to the participants, they are very aware of what the program is and, and how successful it was for them. Um, but still, there, there has not been an increase in that, um, in that budget. Um, and there's no way for us to, or for, for myself at that time, to then allocate funds within that budget to better prepare the participants or to better resource them because a lot of that budget went to paying the vendors of the program. Um, and so I think a lot of that gets lost because it happens behind the scenes. Um, but Commissioner Titles asked was, you know, right on target, um, let's fund this program so that we can build out the program more, provide more resources within the program itself, and then have the money within the commission to, you know, maybe we could set up grants with that money once our budget gets bigger. But the pushback, the pushback, I think, is also indicative of something much bigger. Um, and when we talk about equity or those who are in pursuit of it um, or, you know, spend their lives chasing after it uh, for the better of mankind, right? Um, you, you, you're met with pushback. Um, but the question there is like, why? And then how are we supposed to actually get these things done if we can't even agree to write a letter to the legislature to say, can we take these fines? Not even, can you give us more money? We're already going to receive this money. We're already, we, we've already uh, fined um, businesses upwards of $100,000, you know, um, why can't we just ask? Um, and to, to see that pushback and even um, for them to say like, oh, this is a shameful ask or a shameful vote, it's just like, what is shameful about trying to actualize our equity mission? And as you stated earlier, the equity mission is broader than the social equity program and the economic empowerment program because we have to think about who these programs leave out. They have a set of eligibility um, requirements that not everyone who has been disproportionately impacted meets. Now, we were intentional about what those eligibility criteria are, and I love them. I think that they do meet those who are most impacted, but they don't meet everyone that's most impacted, and there are some, you know, restrictions um, that leave people out. And so we have to think about the broader term of equity and how can we get there if internally within the commission, we are being met with uh, resistance. I think that's true. And uh, there were certainly some objections that were based just on process to commissioner right. titles uh, asked last week. And I, I thought it was telling in some ways, I thought it was sad in some ways, but at the same time, I think it is a reminder, as you're saying, that nothing is a given when fighting for equity because, and this segues into something else I was going to ask you about, <laughs> because there's always going to be an enemy of equity, whether it be people seeking to profit, whether it be people seeking to use equity to leverage the, the, you know, their own benefit at the expense of the greater good, uh, whether it be people using equity for branding purposes while at the same time doing things that hurt equity. And so it's very hard sometimes to really parse the, the, the labyrinth of discussion surrounding the topic. 
But one thing I wanted to ask you about is, and it's transitioning slightly away, but we will come back uh, to the social equity program because I want to ask you some more questions about it. But I think you're very intimately familiar with the fact that there's a drag, there's a dual dual track system for getting licensed for a cannabis business in the Commonwealth. One must be licensed for a host community agreement on the municipal level, and then one must be licensed by the CCC. Now the CCC has a structure for equity as we're talking about, and it actually has a mandate for equity, but local cities and towns do not. And in fact, when we're gonna talk about a few different cities and towns, but when Cambridge tried to create an economic empowerment only priority period for issuing HCAs that did not include medical dispensaries, they got sued by one of those medical dispensaries, even though, in my opinion, 94G section three subsection A1I allows for a delay in co-locating medical dispensaries as adult use dispensaries for the purposes of an equity priority period. So let me ask you, do you think local cities and towns should be able to have equity priority periods when issuing HCAs that do not include medical dispensaries? Absolutely, and I think like you said, there's a dual a dual system and we can only achieve equity once those systems are on the same um, wavelength, right? And so if you have this equity mandate um, and then regulations and then mission at the state level, and then at the state level, you have no licensing um, limitations or um, how uh, limits of how many licenses can be given forth. And then you're at the city level, you do, you do have to create some type of um, equity programs or mandates for your cities and towns or else, again, the bigger players are going to be able to come in and have their teams, you know, write their applications, get all their paperwork ready for them. And especially um, uh, uh, medical, because medical uh, uh, dispensaries are considered priority um, at the state level. Um, and so if you're not able to kind of cut back on that at the city or the town level, then you're going to see this disproportionate um, industry like we're already seeing, unfortunately, um, made up 75% male dominated workforce and ownership of uh, the marijuana businesses that are currently owned own and operating at this time, um, three uh, equity program um, operating businesses, one black owned. So um, we have to really um, at all levels, just again, be intentional about equity um, and having those um, exclusivity periods because at any moment, and I, I really don't know why the big players are upset about this except for profit, right? Immed immediate profit, but um, is that at any point in time, they are going to be able to successfully um, complete their applications and, and open their businesses because they have the resources at at their fingertips. So I'm not sure why, you know, they would be so heavily against it outside of the fact that they would feel like they're gonna miss out on profits, um, which they should give um, the smaller player time to um, be set up and in, in operating in that space. Yeah, and, and nothing against uh, pursuing profit. We, we are in a free market system, more power to companies who wanna go out there and, and engage in the free market. But when you use your influence over the regulatory process or the municipal process or the legislative process to undermine equity in the pursuit of your own profit, that's no different than what John D. Rockefeller was doing with Standard Oil uh, that we had to break up uh, when we were doing trust busting as a country at the rise of the uh, 20th century. Um, 
But, you know, it, it actually brings up another good point I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, conspicuously absent from the medical program dating back to 2012 was any emphasis on creating a social equity program or an economic empowerment program of any kind. Um, first, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And then I'm interested in, in your thoughts on my proposal that if medical licenses are deverticalized, uh, so currently to have a medical cannabis license, uh, as you know, uh, a firm must uh, cultivate, manufacture, produce, and retail all under the same license. I've been advocating for if those licenses get deverticalized, either through endorsements at the commission level or through a legislative fix, which I believe is H3523, that there be a three to five year period during which those new medical licenses are only issued to SEs and MEEs to make up for the lack of equity programming in the medical program dating back to 2012. Uh, what are your general thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that's an awesome idea, but um, to go back to the original uh, question about why equity was left out of uh, the medical market, and I think that um, towards the uh, ending of my um, career <laughs> at the Cannabis Control Commission, we definitely talked a lot about, okay, now how do we now start incorporating medical into our equity mandates and, and into our equity programs, right? Because not everyone wants to be a recreational business owner. Some of them are interested in medical um, and we've been leaving them out because one, the medical program wasn't the commission's program at first. We just, and it seems like forever ago, but we just um, inherited the medical program in 2019, December to be exact. So not even a year ago. And we definitely um, took a lot of steps in even um, uh, doing away with the fee. Um, and so definitely being intentional about uh, folding that in as as we move on and, and I hope they are still doing that as, as they move on. Um, but I think the first thing about why there was no equity built into that is because when people think about medicine, especially cannabis, they don't automatically connect that to the war on drugs and um, the, the criminalization of the plant because they're thinking, oh, it's medicine, it's doctors. And um, none of these people have disp been disproportionately impacted. It's not an immediate connection of the two, even though it is connected. The war on drugs did not discriminate in terms of if you were a medical patient or not because medis me medical marijuana wasn't legal either. It was just not legal um, until it became so. Um, and then it started to decriminalize itself um, on paper, I would say, because we still see um, disproportionate arrest rates or stops um, in while, while uh, states across the country have decriminalized or legalized, right? Both medical and recreational cannabis. So um, I just think that um, it's not immediate uh, connection in people's minds that, oh, medical marijuana is also a part of um, or should be a part of the reparative justice um, format um, and equity uh, as we look into decriminalizing and legalizing. So true. And I, I think it, it's so clear because, as you mentioned, medical applicants are given priority tantamount to economic empowerment when seeking adult use licenses. And that's resulted in a situation where something like 270 medical uh, priority applicants have gone through the adult use queue, while only 70 SE, EE, and DBEs, disadvantaged business enterprises in total, have gotten through. Um, right. 
And I, I think that speaks to the nature of the fact that not only is access to medical cannabis an equity issue, but the way that the interplay between medical cannabis licensing and adult use licensing and equity in adult use licensing plays out is also a key component to, to this discussion. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Absolutely. And also, I think um, because both medical right now and let's say economic empowerment have the same priority, but we have to think about um, how the medical, like you said, industry was formed and it, it had no equity within it. So it's a lot of big players, a lot of people with uh, teams and money at their fingertips. So of course, when you say, hey, there's going to be priority at the state for you when you apply of course you're going to see 270 of them um, because they're, they've been ready to go. They've been operating. They have teams. They have money. They have profit. Um, and then you have an economic empowerment program with participants who don't necessarily have that, but we're expecting to see the same outcomes and the same rate of licensing. And it's like, that's never going to work. Um, and I, I think this takes me back um, to when I saw Commissioner Title's equity policy, it had a one-to-one -one ratio baked into it. And I was like, this is the most awesome thing I've ever seen. But then that did not play out. I'm not sure if at that time she was met with resistance there um, because it was like a month or two before my time. Um, and then it was just never revisited because it was like the queue was too far gone and or, you know, other um, I don't want to say excuses, but other reasons um, why that could not then be initiated. But there's no way um, to to undo those things, right? Once they start start getting going, um, but to go back and then say, okay, from here on out, now we're going to do this type of ratio, or now we're going to do this because we're going to see Massachusetts industry in terms of licensing end up the same way we see every other industry, right? White, male, dominated, owned. No, and it speaks so clearly to um, what we were talking about before, which is even if you provide the programs, even if you create the priority, there's always going to be other factors, whether it be um, the municipal barriers we just talked about, people suing to try to stop municipalities from having strong equity language, which you can tell really grinds my gears, not to, not to quote Peter Griffin. Um, and, and then um, what, what you were just talking about, which is this fundamental imbalance between these huge corporate medical players and the EEs uh, and SEs. One thing that's seeking to uh, uh, sort of level out that imbalance uh, is the Social Equity Loan Fund. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that. But as we've hit the bottom of the hour, I'll pause for a quick station identification. Uh, you're, you are all watching The Young Jerks, and my name is Grant Smith. I have the honor and privilege this evening of interviewing Shakia Scott the former Director of Community Outreach and Social Equity Programming for the Cannabis Control Commission. Uh, as always, you can find more content from The Young Jerks at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash The Young Jerks, or you can find our written content on midnightmass.substack.com. This episode, like all of our episodes, will be also be available on our podcast platform, thanks to the wonderful Mike Crawford, who's the founder and other host of The Young Jerks. You can listen to that podcast on Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere else where your podcasts are found. Also, a huge thank you to UFCW 1445 for all of their work in the local cannabis arena. So, 
coming back in after my wonderful station identification break, Shakia. Um, what I wanted to ask you about was the social equity loan fund, because like we were talking about, one of the biggest barriers to entry outside of municipalities and hostile corporate actors is access to capital. So the social equity loan fund, which is Senate Bill 2650, was actually a big component of uh, EON's, uh, Chanel Lindsay uh, runs e uh, Equitable Opportunities Now, and they hosted a rally last week that was co-sponsored by BECMA, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, and the Minority Cannabis Business Association. At that rally, there were a bunch of bills that were discussed, but one of the most prominent bills was the Social Equity Loan Fund. This bill, Senate Bill 2650, from uh, Cannabis Policy Committee Co-Chair Senator, Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, who is also wonderful, would, create, uh, would not only provide a funding mechanism for the internal social equity program, but would then provide a no-interest loan fund through housing and urban development for social equity and economic empowerment efforts. The fund would be uh, populated for community donations matched on a one-to-one -one basis with up to 10% of the revenue from the cannabis uh, excise tax. Um, what do you think about that kind of loan fund? What do you think about uh, EON's rally last week? And uh, do you see that kind of no interest loan as viable to really engendering the kind of equity you think needs to happen? So a lot there, but I was super thankful for Chanel and the rally that um, EON put forth um, Commissioner Title, Chairman Hoffman, um, Shigun Idawu, who's actually my co-founder of uh, BP Cat, um, and a close friend of mine who really, uh, you know, uh, I wish I had his oration skills, but <laughs> he, he really took it to town and, and hit the, you know, um, nail on the head with his, um, um, where did my go? But he knows, he <laughs> uh, when he was, um, yes, there you go. Um, and um, a bunch of economic empowerment applicants and even uh, one of our past um, social equity program vendors and uh, social equity program participants speaking on what they need, right? And a bunch of it was funding. That's the key thing. The, the program provides you the technical training and assistance that you need, right? Everything that you need to know is built into that program because I made sure of it. <laughs> But, um, and, and even some financial um, uh, benefits are there, right? But it's not enough, right? The program bakes in a application fee waiver. It bakes in a annual renewal fee 50% waiver. It bakes in a seed to sale tracking monthly um, metric uh, waiver. Um, it bakes in a exclusivity period for um, uh, delivery and social consumption licenses. But it doesn't give you any startup capital or any funding um, that you actually need. And some of these businesses need a lot of money to start up. There's hundreds of dollars that need to go into these things, hiring architects and putting in security systems and making sure that you have um, secured off spaces and alarms and security systems. But um, but definitely, you know, a lot of money goes into any kind of business, right? Um, but I, you know, I while I appreciate everything that's in this bill and that it's no interest in that, yes, it will fund the internal social equity program, which is necessary. Um, 
I, I don't agree with loans. I don't agree with loans. Um, and that's just because I feel like um, to enact equity, right? And again, here we're going to say in being intentional um, and thinking about what a loan is. And as someone who has never taken out a loan, right? <laughs> if I wanted to open one of these business, I would be completely turned off from taking out a loan, taking out a loan because one that, um, you know, that indicates to me debt. And um, to, for those who have been disproportionately impacted, they're already in debt, right? And not financially only, they've invested. And I, um, I uh, Saskia from um, MRCC has stated this on the rally that they have invested their lives and um, their livelihoods, their families' lives. Um, they have been, um, you know, or given up because of this uh, criminalization um, housing opportunities, employment opportunities, where even um, entrepreneurial opportunities where they can't participate in those things or they can't generate enough, enough wealth for them and their families because of the past harms of the criminalization of this drug. So then to say, hey, well, I'll loan you this money. Um, granted that we know that this industry is profitable, it still kind of rings an alarm in my head. Um, but, you know, if it works, and I know there are some people, um, not every social equity program participant or economic empowerment or anyone who has been disproportionately impacted is, um, you know, not well off financially. There are some, you know, people are at all levels of their lives. So I don't want to indicate that like loans wouldn't um, benefit anyone. But I just think as a whole, when we're thinking about equity, and then we think about a loan, we have to be more intentional about what a loan is um, and then how that could also um, hold people back or um, discourage people from, from wanting that money, right? Because it's a loan at the end of the day. Yeah, that's such an important point. And I'm glad you brought up Saskia from MRCC because this is something that I think she has hit a home run on, which is loan forgiveness. Now there's some yes. nuance because the Massachusetts legislature apparently hates the word grant. I try not to take that yes. as, a per as a personal insult, but they apparently really dislike the word grant. Um, so loan forgiveness. Uh, what I'm hearing is that you'd really like to see that bill amended to include a loan forgiveness provision. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, to add on, they also like, don't like the word trust. <laughs> they don't like trust or grants. So um, loan forgiveness um, would absolutely, you know, bake itself into what equity actually is. Um, and like I said, just being intentional about what a loan is and then the communities that you're looking to reach with a loan. Um, loan for forgiveness would just go hand in hand with that. So true. And uh, folks um, who are interested in finding out more, that bill um, is was reported favorably out of the Joint Cannabis Policy Committee. It is Senate Bill 2650. It is right now in the Senate Ways and Means Committee. If you would like to see the Social Equity Loan Fund passed, and if you would like to see loan forgiveness included, and if you would like to see the internal social equity program funded and finally raised above the level it was at three years ago, please 
reach out to your representatives and senators. As Chairman Hoffman said the other day at the uh, EON event, the only way this bill is going to pass, he was told this by a senior legislative leader in the Massachusetts State House, the only way the Social Equity Loan Fund bill is going to pass is if you reach out to your lawmakers and senators, your lawmakers, your representatives, your senators, and you tell them that you support Senate Bill 2650 and you want to see it amended to include a loan forgiveness provision. Um, Shakia, I did, uh, on that note, uh, want to take an opportunity to ask you about something related uh, because there's a, not a counter proposal, but there's another way that some people have been proposing to get funding to these applicants. And there was actually an excellent um, article back on July 15th in Marijuana Moment, uh, which is a really good uh, uh, cannabis news site for people who don't follow it. Uh, Kyle Yeager wrote a piece uh, where he, it was entitled, Colorado Marijuana Regulators Propose Franchise Business Model for Equity Applicants. And before I ask you for your opinion on that kind of model and the Oakland model and all of that, I want to read um, two quotes from Jason Ortiz, who's the president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. So Jason's first quote was, while accelerator programs sound good on paper, they so often create terrible long-term power dynamics for smaller businesses that we cannot endorse this approach. Ortiz said, any relationship that puts a small business owner at the whim of a larger conglomerate makes us concerned that the power dynamic there does not favor the smaller business who will now have their operation tied to the success of the larger entity. We instead encourage any business to invest in grant-based programs that allow for smaller businesses to operate on their own premises and to run their businesses how they see fit. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, Jason uh, from the MCBA's statement and the whole notion of those incubator or franchise programs. Well, I agree with Jason's quote. Um, I think when I first came into the commission, um, that, that was in 2018, by the way, um, May, to, May of 2018, um, the first thing that I did was look at Oakland's program, right? Because Oakland was the first. They were the first, um, which is a city level. And as, as you guys know, we tout our program as the first in the nation because it's the first statewide program. Um, but Oakland was the first. They set the, they set the tone and I immediately um, researched everything that they did and what their program looked like. And it was a, like an accelerator model. We pair you with um, a, a bigger business that can kind of be your mentor. I wasn't really working out favorably and um the one thing that i took away from that was like oh we're absolutely not going to do that um and i also think that it takes away from us in a sense of equity um because you're pairing um these and it depends on how you do it um i that wasn't all of oakland's program but it was a, a part of it um but i would say that it can overshadow the actual business that you are trying to um, increase equity for, and you're trying to lay um, or lay down barriers for, um, because these bigger players sometimes, you know, they they take on these um, smaller players and they leave them in the dust. It's just like, okay, yeah, sure, you know, this is what we did, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it doesn't really pay enough focus and attention on the actual needs of that business. Um, and, and like Jason said, it, it just gets away from um, focusing again on that smaller player and it puts a lot of spotlight um, in the power structure 
of that bigger player because now they're like your boss right they're like okay well we're going to take on your business um and i know that in massachusetts we see a lot of um through our pips those are positive impact plans you guys um a lot of businesses have done successful accelerator programs but um and i think that's great you know on your own or in your business model you can design accelerator programs where you as a successful business who have went through the licensing process can say hey this is what we did this is how we do it but for the state to pair you um and then leave you as as is i don't think that's a, a valuable business model or equity model yeah thank you so much and um i know jason was hinting at it but you've done so much research into it is is it what happens is it is i'm trying to understand this so with these incubator or franchisee models it's almost like the bigger companies almost wait for the smaller companies to go under so they can roll them up yes um in a sense um i so oakland's was an equity permit program um it was designed to minimize barriers and so it, it had a lot to do and I thought this was an awesome idea. They 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 uh, kind of funded um, spaces for those uh, equity businesses, um, and then paired them with bigger businesses. Um, but it, it's really like, hey, if you don't succeed, now you're tied again to that bigger business, who can then, like you said, just roll you up into theirs, into their model, into their structure, or buy you out. Um, as time goes on, so so yes. Now I got to ask because um, I know this is a conversation that's been happening. I don't per se think that um, the loan fund uh, twenty six fifty and incubators are mutually exclusive. But what I do think is important that any then I think you probably have some insight on this is that if there were to be an incubator type or franchisee program, that the guardrails and the oversight be as strict, if not more strict than the ownership and control uh, requirements. Because the last thing we would want is for these incubation programs to take the form of shelf agreements or other predatory agreements that while they may work good, uh, may work well in the short term for maybe a few applicants, they undermine equity as public policy. And of course, the interests of one applicant and the interests of equity on the whole are not per se uh, the same thing. Um, so I guess that that's really what I'd want to ask you. If you were, um, you know, the leader of the world and you were designing the guardrails, uh, which I have, I just get the sense you're going to get there one day, but we'll get there in oh. a minute. Um, <laughs> what kind of guardrails and uh, oversight would you want to attach to an incubator program to prevent that kind of roll up from happening? Wow. So, um, well, with the incubator program, I think I would focus it on um, specific things, right? Um, I, even with Oakland, they have a partner match. It's like they, they partner you with someone who helps you fill out your application, right? And I know we do this in our social equity program, but, um, you know, there's hundreds of people in the social equity program. Um, and if you can have a one-on-one, -on -one, just someone walk you directly through your application you know i think it's just looking at specific things that the incubator does and not necessarily saying okay this bigger uh player is going to help your business be successful they're either going to um help you uh with this specific 
application. They're going to help you with the um, the uh, inspection and enforcement uh, processes, or they're going to help you um, build your team. Um, just things that are more specific than, um, you know, they're going to, to kind of like uh, build your business um, because that leaves too much power in, in that dynamic. Um, and they can make it so, not that they will, but they can make it so that your business does not succeed, right? Um, but there just will have to be, again, here's that word, intentional um, uh, language around um, what those businesses are doing with each other. And it has to be limited um, in scope um, and specific in scope so that you can see the actual tangible outcomes instead of a few years down the line, you're just like, oh, well, what happened to their business? Oh, it didn't succeed. And you're just like, but why? And no one really knows because there's not any specific metrics of what that incubator uh, program is supposed to do. And I, I wouldn't even uh, partner them in that way um, so that you're not tied to them. Um, but that, but the, I think Sarah Naturals had a program, um, an incubator program, an accelerator program um, where they focused like on licensing and they focused on building um, out your, your team. Um, and I think those are like good starting points. I, I don't know all of the specifics into um, what would actually make that the best uh, or successful model, um, but I know that I've seen it not do well in, in certain other places. Yep. And I there, there's so many comments going by so quickly, but I saw some people saying um, no transferability of equity, no strings attached uh, with things like grants. Um, and I, I think that that um, all plays in well. And you know, it's so interesting because it really highlights what's fundamental here, which is the intentionality of the oversight. Because for example, in Cambridge, I know we talked a little bit about this, but the situation in Cambridge was fascinating because when the city of Cambridge was proposing this EE only priority period for their HCAs, these medical dispensaries really didn't want it to go through because it would have set the tone that 94G section three subsection A1I was interpreted in such a way where any city or town could have EE or SE only priority periods that excluded medical dispensaries. And they were gonna fight like hell or high water to make sure that didn't happen. So one of the things they did, which is kind of what we're talking about, was they proposed a fund. And this fund would have funded about four or five applicants and it would have given them access to to monetary resources in exchange for the medical dispensaries coming into the equity period well that fund not only was it not cash for the most part it was in the form of shelf agreements which basically okay. turns the equity applicant into an extension of the person providing the loans and on top of that the reason why that fund didn't get upset accepted wasn't even because of the shelf agreements it was because on September 5th, 2019, the uh, dispensaries sent a letter to the city council saying that they had in, entered into a legally binding contract with the Central Square Business Improvement District to oversee distribution of the funds. Only for three days later for the Central Square Business Improvement District to send their own letter to the city council stating that they had no such contract signed and hadn't even moved beyond preliminary discussion. And what that would have resulted in was the dispensaries overseeing the disbursement of their own funds had that right. agreement. And that's the kind that's a microcosm of exactly why corporate interests and public policy don't always mix. 
Right. And and what I want to add there is when we talk about fun, right? And you see how of that fun instantly people think funds are good too. And funds are not always great. It depends on like like we keep saying how intentional you are about the funds. Um, because we can't we also can't fix or provide reparative justice for this lengthy time of um, uh, criminalization of, of, of this plant um, and the people who who did or did not use it, right, or were blamed for using it um, with just money. You can't throw money at an issue um, and have it um, resolve itself. Um, you can't fund four or five people of an entire city or town or state and think that that's equity. So, um, and then you cannot, uh, well, you can, right? But um, you can't um, go into these contracts with other businesses to then oversee your own funding um, to these to these communities. Um, so it just it's just a lot to think about and a lot to um, make sure that we're present about and being again intentional about when we're talking about funding, when we're talking about creating these funds um, and what they look like and where they're actually going. Um, I don't know if you saw today, even um, in the police reform bill, they're going to allocate or reallocate money um, to the police, the people who were the main culprits of uh, or the main tool in enacting the war on drugs and disproportionately impacting hundreds and thousands of millions of people, especially the Black African American um, community, Hispanic, um, Latino, Latinx, um, and then other people of color. So we we really have to think about these things um, and 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 talk about what they're actually doing underneath the title of what they what they say they are. Oh, thank you so much for giving me that segue because what I wanted to dive in with you, uh, dive into with you as a corollary to what we were just talking about was there was an excellent piece in the Boston Globe about three or four months ago by the wonderful uh, Naomi Martin that you might have read. Uh, my friend uh, Chauncey Spencer was the, uh, the picture at the top of the article. I always get a kick out of that. But in that article, it talked about something very serious, which is that last year there was $70.6 million collected in cannabis excise revenue by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now, as you know, by law, that money was supposed to be spent among five categories, one of which was public safety, one of which was communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, and there were some others, uh, which I'm sure you'll tell me about. But <laughs> last year, all $70.6 million went to public safety. So um, I'm interested in your thoughts and in particular your thoughts as to how we can ensure that that funding going forward, one, doesn't go to police departments in a way that perpetuates the very behavior that the cannabis equity structure was supposed to alleviate, and two, to ensure that when it does go to communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, it's spent in a way that actually facilitates equity. Yes, absolutely. So you're absolutely right, even in um, our state law and then our regulations um, in the commission's mission, we say that we are going to allocate funds to five specific buckets. Um, one of them, of course, like you said, being public safety um, and, and a few more. However, um, the commission, and this is one part of my job that gets left out, I oversaw the uh, Citizens Review Committee, which is a committee of nine um, community members, all from areas of disproportionate impact, 
who will make rec recommendations to the legislature of where that money will go, which is tax revenue money. Um, and then how those uh, areas um, should be uh, fulfilled with that money. Um, and I think when what, the first thing we have to do is reimagine what public safety is um, because public safety is a wide range of things. And, but I think most people's minds automatically go to the police, right? They're like, Oh, public safety, the police. And it's like, no, and that's not public safety to a lot of the communities that you're trying to reach. And you're saying that you want to provide reparative justice for in terms of policing, which is the, which is the war on drugs. When we say war on drugs, I think, what we also leave out or our brains leave out is that it's the police that we're talking about, right? Um, and so um, I think we have to reimagine what public safety is, especially in this space where there's a lot of trauma, where there's been a lot of um, uh, disproportionate impact um, and, and uh, all of it relating to uh, public, public safety officials, police. Um, Sorry, go ahead. I saw you wanted to say something. <laughs> no, I just didn't know if you were done. Please continue. Oh, um, yeah. So, so I think you know. I don't. I'm not sure what happened there. The money again was just sitting. People have been crying out for it, um, raising their voices, talking about it at every ch every chance they can get. Commissioner Title, Chairman Hoffman, um, as well. He's very big on funding and capital and. Um, getting that moving forward in terms of equity and it's just been there um and we haven't been able to um see um any efforts or new efforts from the legislature in terms of where those funds go or um, new creative ideas of how they can be used and, and like you said we've only seen the money allocated into that one bucket it's like what is going on there and um how can we um, set forth a different idea of what public safety is so that um, when we think about where to put these funds, we're not thinking that public safety is the best, the best bucket to drop it in. Yeah, that's so crucial. And now I know you've had a lot of on the ground experience uh, with, with the body camera uh, program and working with uh, former city council president uh, Campbell. Um, how would you like to see, say um, by 2024, we're at 500 million a year in excise tax revenue, and say they wanna spend 125 million of it um, outside of the loan fund on communities disproportionately impacted. So you're, you have a budget of 125 million, 12 months in carte blanche. What would you do with those funds? Woo! <laughs> There's so much to do with them, right? There's so many places to put them that's not the police. Um, but I think, you know, one, um, and, and this is touted all the time, put it directly into the hands of those that are impacted. That's number one. Put it directly into the hands of the people disproportionately impacted. Um, put it into the social equity program and, and more programming as it comes about. Put it into educational programs. Put it into um, um, funding, um, and, I, and I'll shout out um, Marion uh, McNabb here, um, into life experience. There are people in this industry, and, and as people say, um, I've heard this term, I think Saskia said it, but, um, 
it's it's not it's calling um the legal market like the commercial market right it is a market it's been a market so and and a lot of people in that market have life experience growing cultivating selling um all kinds of business experience that they're not able to use once it's been legalized because now we're like oh well you're not a horticulturist and you haven't been um cultivating in 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 any area for this many years and you're like yes i have i've been doing it at home or in my backyard or in my basement um but yes i think um just again putting it directly into the hands of those people who have been disproportionately impacted and not policing what you feel like they should do with it. You owe them a debt. You owe them a debt. Just like reparations are owed to descendants of um, American enslaved persons, you owe people um, that have been impacted by the war on drugs and the criminalization of their livelihoods, you owe them a debt and give it to them and don't worry about what they do with it. Um, and if they don't want to use it in the cannabis space, oh, wow, you've impacted their entire lives, not just their use of cannabis. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of creative ideas that I can just spew out um, and say, but that's the biggest one for me is give it to the people, give it to them. <laughs> oh, awesome. Um, I love your, your passion and I, I, I can see how it would be amazing to put you in a room with a spreadsheet and a budget and see what happens after a few days. So, um, but well, that's what I did with the equity program. I had a budget, 300,000 and then it's like, okay, what is this going to be? And at the beginning, you know, everyone kept saying to me like, oh, wow, that's so ambitious. And to me, that's, that's, um, coded language, but they were saying, oh, that's so ambitious and this and that. And I was like, okay, we'll see how ambitious it is when it happens. Um, right. And so, like I said, I, I have a lot of, uh, creative visionary ideas, um, but I'm not the only person, right? I um, of those communities that have been disproportionately impacted. But you also you also don't make those decisions. You listen to the people, and I made sure to listen to people, research all of the other programs, see how they were doing successfully before I then said, okay, this is what our program should look like. And um, I think that's number one. I'm not all of the community, and I don't re represent all of the community that has been disproportionately impacted. Um, and so, you know, while I can say, I would love to do this and see this and do that, the first thing you do is listen to them um, and put the money where they ask you to. Um, and, and then you don't have to think of all of those things to do and just come up with them or uh, reinvent the wheel, right? Um, you just you just go where, where the people need you. Reminds me of uh, one of the best pieces of advice I think I've ever heard uh, from Commissioner Title, which was, the easiest way to come across as authentic is to be authentic and the that's easiest, it the easiest way to be authentic to the needs of any community is to listen to that community and and you know what i even go further to say um because i know uh in in terms of the things that have been happening nationally right or the the more vi more visible um policing of black and african communities the death of george floyd you have to not only listen and learn but you need to act um listening and learning while they are verbs they're not actions um that you're actually taking and it kind of you know um it kind of 
cuts the accountability on our end um, to act and to make sure that we are, again here, being intentional about those actions after we have listened to those communities. So powerful. Um, so what I was going to say is normally I would say, you know, we've been going for an hour and I, I appreciate <laughs> it, but we have so many people watching and, and I, I want to keep going. Um, do you mind if we keep you for a little bit longer? I don't want to impose on your time. No, I don't mind at all. I do feel like there's some things I want to clarify and some things I definitely want to talk about. And um, and if people are watching and tuned in and they want to hear more, then by all means, I'm, I'm just living on my end. So I have a lot of time. <laughs> Well, that's awesome, in which case I'll pause uh, quickly for station identification. Uh, so it's the bottom of the hour, 4.03 p.m. on this very hot uh, day across the Northeast. Uh, it's July 20th, 2020. It's about 4 p.m. as I said. My name is Grant Smith. I'm with the Young Jerks and I'm here this afternoon, uh, this early evening, doing an amazing interview uh, with an amazing person. Uh, Shakia Scott is the former Director of Community Outreach and Social Equity Programming for the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. You all are watching The Young Jerks. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Young Jerks. You can find us on our podcast platforms at The Young Jerks, uh, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, Breaker, or otherwise. And as always, uh, feel free to follow our Facebook group where we post daily updates and news stories about cannabis and otherwise. Uh, thank you as well to UFCW 1445 for all their excellent work in the local cannabis arena. Um, so uh, bringing things back, thank you for your patience there, Shakia. Um, I uh, was going to ask some questions, but before we do that, why don't we jump into what you uh, wanted to talk about. So I know there's been a lot of people who have been sometimes attacking the social equity program or saying that it's not doing what it needs to do. Um, by the same token, I know we've talked a little bit about today, a little bit today about how equity is a lot more uh, than just any one program. At the same time, though, I think that, you know, it is important. Um, like you were saying, to, to talk about what the program has done. And so my question is, can you talk about if you think the program is, was successful and why? Absolutely. So one thing I want to do is clear up what the program is um, and, and then, you know, like you said, talk about its success and its failures, right, if any. Um, but I, I know that for me, one thing that has been very frustrating is watching um, the media, <laughs> as well as the public, one, continuously confuse the programs entirely, right? Both economic empowerment and the social equity program, and then um, also relate them to licensing programs. So neither the economic empowerment nor the social equity program are licensing programs. So if you are basing the success of these programs on the numbers of licenses, and as you heard Chairman Hoffman say, we have um, uh, uh, over 70 of them for um, SEs, EEAs, and DBEs, um, but only three operating, you're going to say, well, your equity programs are failing. And I think what people are thinking about is our overall equity programs, right? Like our, our overarching mission of equity is failing. That to me is failing because the industry itself is not equitable. And again, we've seen that it's at 75% male, white male, 
domination right now. Um, but the economic empowerment program, um, you know, was a program that was focused on giving those who meet three of six eligibility criteria priority review on their licensing applications. Um, it did not um, include technical assistance and training, um, but it did include other uh, benefits um, that the social equity program does include, which are those um, financial waivers um, and then uh, exclusive um, access to uh, social consumption and delivery licenses. So that's economic empowerment. Those, that was the only um, uh, um, provision of, the, of that program, priority review, and then these other uh, benefits in terms of your licensing application, your annual renewal, and access to certain um, uh, um, license types. Uh, for the social equity program, the social equity program is solely a technical assistance and training program, meaning, um, well, this program has four tracks, um, which focus on entrepreneurship, workforce development at two levels, which is the entry level and the managerial level, and then ancillary businesses, because I feel like people leave that out. That's the most important part to me, um, because people leave it out in terms of when they think of what the industry is, they, they automatically think, oh, I need to own an establishment or I need to work in one when they already have or may have skills in businesses that are a part of this industry, they just don't know it yet, or they haven't imagined it in that way. Um, and what it provides is, you know, access to direct um, uh, curriculum from the commission to, in the entrepreneur track, 14 courses to take you from pre-idea to post-operational licensing, right? It doesn't guarantee you a license, but it helps you with the licensing and application process. And um, hopefully soon you'll see a number of reports from the end of the first cohort in terms of what the program participants felt like this program did for them, um, which I've seen and I cried because I was like, this is amazing. Um, but. Um, I just want to clarify what those programs are and what they do. So um, outside of those two main things, priority review and then um, technical assistance and training, these programs don't provide any um, uh, dedicated, when you finish this, you'll have a license, you'll be ready to operate because that's not how they work. Um, and we don't have any licensing programs at this time um, because we don't have a cap on licensing at the state level. And that's where people get confused. So they see the number of licenses, they see the number of businesses operating, and they say, oh, these programs failed. And it's like, these two programs didn't fail um, by themselves, but as a collective in terms of what equity is in, in our collective equity mission, yes, as the commission and the state, we are failing our equity, our equity mission. So I think that the social equity program itself, and not just because I, I directed it and I created it, um, is one, and here I have to say again, shout out to Commissioner Title and um, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley because without them, there would be no equity program um, when I, or equity mandates or equity mission or regulations. Um, and none of that language would be tied in without those two. Um, we always like to say that the social equity program is Commissioner Title's baby that I raised. Um, so when I came in, you know, there, the economic empowerment program had 
um, started and concluded the month before I came in. So I just kind of adopted the participants and started to reach out to them and um, tried to familiarize them with who I was and how, how I could help them. Um, and then it then I shifted to focusing on creating, uh, building up the program from the idea that Commissioner Title had set forth in which it was stated already, it would be called the social equity program, it would be a technical assistance and training program, it would have these three eligibility criteria, and then that was it. Um, and so we uh, successfully um, had 143 participants of the first cohort. Um, immediately you have well, we deemed in February that as soon as you're accepted into the program, you have access to all of the program's benefits um, so that you're not stalled in your pursuit of licensing while you're in this program. Um, but another misconception is that you have to go into this program before you can apply for a license, but you can do those in any um, direction. So um, in terms of success, I think the program is a successful technical assistance and training program. Um, again, I made sure that um, I reached out to other people. I listened to the participants. I went to every single course of the program so that I could meet the participants, talk to them directly about what it is they think sucks about the program. And I tell them that openly, tell me that this sucks. Tell me if you hate it. And some of them absolutely did, right? And, and when I, and I made a comment on Twitter the other day where I said the program didn't fail anyone. Um, and people were like taken aback by that because I don't feel like the program failed anyone because those who felt like it failed them, I, I spoke with them and I gave them, um, you know, and I wouldn't say those that felt that it failed them, those who felt that it had missed certain things or that it didn't help them achieve certain things um, were things that were outside one of the program like capital and funding. Um, but they were also things that I was able to go back to the commission and say, hey, how do we work this into the program? How do we hold a separate event where we um, pay attention to this actual thing? Um, and or how do I um, provide it myself to this participant outside of the program? So. Um, to me, the program and the participants of the first cohort, um, as you spoke to Devin Alexander this morning, um, they, there's a lot of valuable information there. There's a lot um, that the participants were elated about and happy that they went through the program and said that it helped them do, even those who are operating at this time. Um, economic empowerment, I have to say that's a completely different thing. Um, and in sense of the failure or the success there, I say it was successful in terms of identifying a number of um, businesses or individuals who meet this and that we could give them priority review. However, again, like I said, it failed in its its efforts because a lot of people who applied for economic empowerment then didn't know what to do next. They were like, wait, well then how do I apply for this license? And if they had had that technical assistance and training program in tandem with being granted priority review, then this might've been a more uh, visibly successful program for those that were in it. I would also say that um, while economic empowerment did not 
fail because it did provide what it set out to provide to those participants, um, both programs are not reaching as many uh, constituents as they can. Um, and, and one of those things is because, um, you know, there's not a lot of understanding around what the programs actually are. There's not a lot of um, uh, um, um, positive media around what the programs are and what they do um, and getting those right and not confusing the two. Um, but also because I'm, I'm one person. So when I was working in the commission, and I had to start focusing on developing this program and then, you know, securing the vendors and reviewing the application, writing the application. I, I wrote the application for this program um, and, and a bunch of other things that go in tandem with a program. Um, I, I kind of had to leave um, the, the economic empowerment participants in the dust. And I hate to say that. I, I mean, when I was on my way out of the um, Cannabis Control Commission, I was in tears because I felt like, you know, I personally, um, and I know, I know it's not a personal failure, but I personally felt like I failed my community because I wasn't able to dedicate as much time and resources to the economic empowerment participants as I was to the social equity program participants um, and the program itself. Um, and, and that devastated me because they needed a lot of things that they didn't receive or couldn't receive because one, I didn't have the resources or the capability um, or the capacity to deliver those things to them. So, um, you know, I would say overall, like I said, um, in our overall mission, yes, we are failing um, because the industry doesn't um, actualize equity in terms of licensing in the businesses that are opening, but the programs themselves are operating in the way that they set out to do um, and are operating under the, the um, success measurements that were put in place when these programs were developed. Oh, yeah. And thank you so much for taking us through that. It's such an important perspective that I feel not only are not enough people exposed to, but not enough people are willing to take the time to understand. So I really right. think you've done an invaluable service. And it leads me to tell you some good news, uh, which was going to be my next question. But before I get there, <laughs> I'll just tell you the good news, which is, as you know, there's a, a CCC regulatory revision happening right now where some of the guidance uh, with the draft um, regulations have been promulgated and part of those draft regulations touch on the SEP program and the EEA the EE program and one of the changes among many is that e, uh, EE applicants will now be given access to the SEP program's training uh, materials so I thought yes you would appreciate that uh, I love that actually worked on that um, and wait, first, shout out to our legal team, um, especially Pauline at the commission um, and um, uh, Christopher, Andrew, well, he's he was with the legal team, um, Christine, they really are intentional intentional about equity. And when the regulation um, drafting comes up, they're very um, intentional about reaching out to me or or were i'm gone now but reaching out to me and saying hey what do you think we can include here and one of the first things i said was add eea as an eligibility criteria for the social equity program that's the very first thing we need to do because they're getting left in the dust regardless of how we try to slice it and say you know the program only set out to do this 
they still need um, to be reached out to, to be engaged and to be included in everything that we're doing in terms of equity because they meet three of six eligibility criteria that we that were designed to um, identify that they're focused on equity or their equity businesses. So I love that and I hope, you know, and I and I saw those draft regulations and, and I know and I ha um, have faith in the commission um, that, that they will get it done. Um, whether it's slowly or quickly, um, we shall see. Um, but I know that there's a lot of folks that are there that are very intentional um, about equity and making sure that is wrapped into their um, lives. And I know a lot of people working on those regulations don't get a lot of shout outs. So I wanna shout out that legal team for sure. Yes, and actually uh, that you brought up the six criteria for EE status without realizing, I think that my next question was gonna be, Another change is, so when EE status was originally put out there, as you mentioned, you could qualify by meeting any three of the six criteria. A change that's now happening is that instead of any three of the six, uh, applicants will need to meet not one of uh, three equity-based criteria and then two of the other five. Uh, those equity-based criteria refer to who actually owns the company rather than who the company plans to hire or work they've done. Um, so what do you think of requiring all EEs to meet one of those three equity-based criteria? You know what? Um, I think it goes either way, but I think it's a good thing. I, you know, I know that some even uh, social equity program participants um, that I spoke to, they felt like the commission was trying to be their parents and tell them like, you have to do these things, you have to meet these. And that's really because the commission itself in the state of Massachusetts, at the end of the day, we're going to have to say, this is what we did to actualize equity, right? And that, and if we can't um, track economic empowerment applicants through uh, the operation of their business because maybe they sold it off or they don't meet those eligibility criteria anymore, did we actually have an equity program? Like, did we have um, a program like how could we measure it? How could we um, track it down the line? So I think that um, it's a good thing um, and we'll be able to see that it's a good thing um, once we are able to have a lot of a lot more of these businesses open and, uh, up and running, um, commencing their operations um, and we're able to say, okay, these many businesses are operating under this type of ownership because they still meet this criteria right here and if we don't have that criteria met then we're not you know for the commission we're not doing what we need to do um or we're not reaching the people who we need to reach and so i i think that's awesome so great i i appreciate you indulging me because i i'm going to get into rapid fire mode here <laughs> um there's just so many things to cover until little time um the another big um uh sort of what Devin Alexander from Rolling Relief called the crown jewel of his social equity program participation is the exclusivity period for access to delivery only licenses and delivery endorsements. Uh, now for folks, I, a lot of folks listening will know, uh, but when uh, applying for an adult use only delivery license, there's two different types of delivery licenses you can get. One is if you're a micro business, which is a, a cultivator that can have 5,000 square feet of canopy, plus someone who can manufacture and produce. Um, 
you can apply to get a delivery endorsement to sell the product that you grow and uh, manufacture directly to consumers. The other type of business is called a delivery only license, although they're changing the name in these new regulations to just a delivery license. Under the current proposal, that delivery license is basically Uber Eats. It allows the company to purchase a fleet of cars and then go pick up orders from brick and mortar dispensaries and then sell the picked up orders uh, at retail price basically to consumers. Um, that model is obviously not very economically viable. So some social equity applicants and others have been asking the commission during this regulatory revision to allow that delivery only model to purchase a warehouse and then purchase product from whole, at wholesale from cultivators and manufacturers and then sell that product from their warehouse, basically cutting out the mandated middleman in the form of brick and mortar stores. What do you think about expanding the capacity for delivery companies to have a warehouse and purchase product at wholesale? I think absolutely. Um, again, here, I'm going to say this word so many times, but being intentional about equity. And I think this is something that Commissioner Taito had said from the very beginning. And even when uh, the commissioners were um, discussing what the regulatory um, uh, makeup of those businesses should look like, how should they be regulated? And she always said, this is not a viable business model that we're putting forth. Um, but yet she's always the odd man out. So she can't overrule, um, you know, what the other commissioners vote for or against. And it ended up being, um, and she started that because, um, you know, the installing those cameras into the cars and things of that, those can cost so much money and we just have to think about who are we designing these licenses for and if we're saying that you know, okay fine we missed the window with recreational license types and so we're going to put it this exclusivity period on delivery license and social consumption um when that when that happens sometime um then we have to make sure that those are viable and in financially um uh helpful businesses, right? You don't want to go in debt to start a the Uber Eats business for, for cannabis. So you should be able to, um, uh, well, I know one thing that's going to, and I hope it's in this new draft regulations because it, it was, um, but um, you should be able to have other license types outside of just delivery only. Um, and in you should have you should be able to have a warehouse and buy from cultivators and then you know transfer that way um the more the more um opportunities that you have the more equity we are going to actualize so um it's really uh, again about being intentional and really looking at um is what we're putting forth equity is it um and if people who we're putting this forth for are saying no this doesn't work this is not this is going to cost me this is going to cost me the same amount as opening a brick and mortar so it's like yeah listen to them and then act on it um and make it viable a viable option for them because even if you have and i also heard um participants say that this exclusivity period should be extended i know that the commission did write into the regulations that upon that uh 24 month um window they would then uh review that exclusivity period to see um if it should be extended but again even in two years that may not be enough time for those businesses to um form get off the ground make enough profit um 
before the bigger players come come in. Um, so I, I wholeheartedly agree. Again, I, li- I want to listen to the people and then meet them where they are. Yep, and you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, Chairman Hoffman and Commissioner Title for years have supported warehousing and uh, wholesale uh, purchasabilities for delivery companies. And um, I think we're going to be saying this name a lot, but it was Commissioner Title who inserted that provision that uh, after 16 months, the priority period will be analyzed. But I happen to agree with you, uh, analyzed to determine if it should be extended. I think the default should be three to four years and maybe it will be extended. Now, you know who's going to go haywire about that? The big corporate (laughs) cannabis interests who view equity as a threat to their profit. But you know what? That makes the courageous actions of Commissioner Title and Chairman Hoffman and anyone else willing to stand up to extend that period even more noble because we don't write regulations in this industry to benefit the interests of any one company or group of companies. We write them for the greater good, in my opinion. And that's why I hope that even if those big companies object to extending the period, the grassroots community rises up in a a groundswell of support to make it clear that equity comes before profit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, as the commission, you know, as it being their mission, um, then it has to be the mission. It has to be the focus. It has to be what what we put forth first um, and not after the fact. Um, and so, yeah, I, I 100% agree. Well, I've been enjoying every minute of this. I can always tell it's a good interview when I think it's been going for five minutes and it's actually been going for an hour and a half. <laughs> um, I always talk a lot, so... Oh, goodness. No, you. I think that uh, we've learned more uh, from your perspective than almost any guest we've ever had on. So I, I can't thank you enough. And I don't even want to want to get out of here quite yet. I won't keep you for too long, but I do want to ask. So we've talked a little bit about it. We've talked a lot about concrete actions. We've talked a lot about what the commission's actually doing right now to address some of these issues, um, be it in the realm of the updated draft regulations or asking lawmakers to pass bills or whatever it may be, especially 2650 uh, in the host community agreement fixed bill, which we didn't even touch. So let me quickly throw this in here. So another issue on the municipal level that undermines equity and the ability of, of smaller companies to access the market is that for a long time, despite Commissioner Title's best efforts, the CCC was not enforcing the 3% cap on contributions in host community agreements. So to give folks some context, the state of Massachusetts has a 20% cannabis tax. And then on top of that, uh, local cities and towns when permitting a cannabis business can sign a host community agreement and collect an extra 3% tax from the applicant, making for a total of 23%. Shakia, please. Nope. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, and so what I was going, where I was going with this is that unfortunately, um, for many years, uh, the CCC has not actually been enforcing the 3% cap. They, the, the CCC uh, commissioner title a few years ago brought up that she felt the CCC had the authority and needed to review these three, these HCAs to ensure they were in line with the 3% cap. She was voted down four to one when she tried to get the CCC to review those caps. And what happened? Two years later, it got to the point where towns were abusing the HCA process to the so badly that Andrew Lelling, the federal U.S. attorney, had to start issuing subpoenas. And in one town, Fall River, the mayor started taking bribes in the form of smokable cannabis. Now, perhaps that's because Fall River elected a 23-year-old mayor. 
I will not comment either way on that. But what I will say is that the host community agreement um, structure uh, without a fix basically makes it very difficult for local small companies to enter the uh, market anywhere because cities and towns start asking for things above the 3%, like fire trucks or donations to nonprofits. Now, not every town does this. Some towns like Ux Uxbridge even negotiate rates below the 3%, but the towns that weren't uh, agreeing to the 3% cap were basically shutting out smaller operators who couldn't afford to pay what amount to bribes. So there's a bill in the legislature on Beacon Hill to fix the host community agreement. Can you tell us a little bit about why that fix is so important and how frustrating it has been for three years to watch as the commission refuses, despite Commissioner Title's best efforts to enforce those HCAs? So I think um, you touched on a great thing. Um, and, I, and to go back to that vote where Commissioner Title was voted down, Internally, that changed the like culture of the commission. We were all watching the public meeting internally, and we saw that vote happen. We were all like, "What?" I thought, you know, that we, I thought we stood on a different side. So I was shocked deeply um, by that vote. And even though I understood, especially like um, Commissioner McBride um, and Commissioner Doyle's, um, and, and I don't know how many people know, but like everyone that works at the commission is a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but everyone else pretty much is like a lawyer or has their law degree in some way or another. But I understood their, their legal framework of why they didn't think we had, um, you know, that power, but I still did not agree with their vote against it. Um, because like I said, that was, that, that was a moment where we could have been intentional um, and we were not. I mean, Commissioner Tyler was, as we're gonna keep saying, but we saw what happened. And I think that shifted um, internally in the commission where, you know, we knew where we stood and we were like, wait a minute. Um, but I, something has to happen with those. And as you talk, or you see more um, program participants, or just those who have been disproportionately impacted, talk about this. That's where they're going. That's where they they've met, or they're uh, scared to meet most of their resistance, right? Or they're not able to get get them. I know um, Vanessa, who's an economic empowerment applicant, she spoke on the rally, um, and she was in Brockton, and um, and she would have been locked out of the industry had Brockton's mayor not passed away um, because he had just given away all of the host community agreements and, you know, um, didn't really take into consideration any um, equity. Um, and most of the participants or just equity designees in general will say that's where they meet the most resistance and the most uh, the biggest barrier outside of funding and capital is getting a host community agreement. Um, I know that some of the legal framework now um, will give us municipalities the option to waive needing a host community agreement, which is amazing. Um, the commission itself, and this is one thing that gets left out of the conversation, we, um, the licensing team, um, shout out Kyle, then I love him, but <laughs> um, he, um, you know, created with his team um, a pre-certification application where uh, participants who are applying, um, and I hope this expands to just all app, uh, licensing applications, but for those social consumption delivery licenses, you don't have to have a host community agreement 
document up front when you go to apply for your license. You'll get all the way to provisional um, before you have to provide any of those things um, because the commission also realizes that that is a huge barrier. Um, especially as cities and towns limit the number of licenses that they're going to give out or limit the amount of host community agreements they're going to give out. So one, I think the commission absolutely should review um, and um, make sure that uh, host community agreements um, are legal. I know that even in the social equity program, we have a course that is just focused on the host community agreement, what can be inside of it, what legally constitutes it and then how do you negotiate that right um because a lot of uh, uh these players are not well um involved in their local politics one because they've been locked out maybe because they have federal um convictions or previous drug convictions due to the to marijuana um and so pol local politics are like not a part of their everyday navigational lives and so um they don't really know how to go about getting a host community agreement and when they get there they're finally like yay they don't care what they sign not not saying that they do sign anything but in some cases they're just like i just need my host community agreement um and um so yeah i think uh any legislation that's uh sitting there or going to go forth in terms of host community agreements should do away with them or uh should make it so um cities or towns can choose to waive them um, and then the commission should absolutely um, review those and I know that uh, Commissioner Doyle when she was there um, and Commissioner M McBride also um, brought up um, uh, process issues with that right and in ca capacity of the commission who who reviews these hire someone hire someone to review them hire someone a lawyer probably right <laughs> that sits there and make sure that these are legal and that um, and that they can follow up with those participants to say, hey, or the municipalities, but um, but definitely pay close attention to that because it's a huge barrier and it's also a huge, it can undermine like we talked about equity. Yep, and um, the commission has shown that it has the capability to really drill down on some of the nuances of those contracts as we saw over the past six months. Um, when the commission's investigators get to looking at things, it can very it becomes very easy for them to find things that people might be trying to hide, and very quickly contracts become inoperable and big mm -hmm. companies start leaving the states uh, when the commission has the authority and is willing to look into things. And I can only imagine, uh, you know, yourself internally, Commissioner Title and others you know, fighting this uphill battle, almost like a Sisyphean task of pushing the boulder up the hill only to have it roll back down on you time and time again, you know, having to have these votes getting outvoted four to one, but standing there planting the flag and saying, you know, three years from now, that we're gonna look at this vote and you're gonna see that I was right. Now we're three years from that from that point and you and I are looking here and we're, we're looking back and Hindsight may be 2020, but it's a lot more than that because it's it reflects a level of frustration right. that I think is understandable. And it's why I understand why folks get so temperamental when they get criticized for not being able to achieve everything that people want in these bureaucratic structures. Ideally, their bu bureaucratic structures would not exist. 
But if they're going to exist, ideally they would work in furtherance of equity and shared goals. But the reality is that oftentimes there's resistance and thus right. fighting for equity becomes a political chess game. And when you're playing that chess game for years and you're working so hard to defeat these institutional forces and institutional apathy and institutional racism, and then people come in and say, this isn't good enough and flip over the table, I can imagine that's very heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also um, like encouragement to keep going. And it's also like encouragement to do things like this, to actually talk about what is happening internally. Like a lot for a long time, no one knew who I was or what I was actually doing in terms of the social equity program, right? Like what that looks like, or um, even outside of that, what I was doing as director of community outreach, a lot of that stays internal because we have a external facing commission where it's five commissioners they go to our public meetings they and 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 for those who don't know the commissioners cannot by law discuss any of the things that you see at the public meeting before that public meeting so it becomes a little bit of a soap opera and people are drawn into that that they kind of overlook the internal um bureaucratic processes that are happening but also they only see the resistance of the other four commissioners and not maybe the resistance of um you know other uh key players internally and then in the legislature um in the legislation um and then those who are writing writing this legislation right um and policy so definitely a lot to to look at to 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 really take into account um, and to really think about when we're um, up in arms about what is and what isn't happening. Because when I first got there, even as we talk about grants and funding, the first thing outside of the social equity program that I put forth was, hey, maybe 40,000 of this $300,000, I can make a little grant. And I was, you know, um, I was giving that opportunity by the CFO, she, she, awesome um adriana uh she was supportive of it but of course she, she needed some type of proposal and things on on board but then as we started to talk and, and delve into the word grant and the words funds and trust it was like can the commission create a grant um is it legal and then you get met with all of those kind of things and then it's kind of like okay well never mind now i have to focus on this and i have to do that so you we just really have to one, um, speak out about what's happening um, with the public and, and so that they know where to raise their voices and who to raise them at, <laughs> um, and then where, where and when they need to show up. So true, and I can't believe we've come back to this because it's how I ended my episode with Commissioner Title, but I'm convinced that my tombstone is going to read, cogent public discourse is the enabling condition of legitimate representative democracy. Uh, and I, I think that that speaks to the, the weighty nature of your insight here, though, which is that bureaucratic structures favor profit and the well-connected. Bureaucratic structures are hostile to grassroots organizing trying to fight for an equitable market. However, at the same time, it's very hard for corporate interests trying to manipulate the regulatory process to be authentic. And it is very easy for grassroots activists being authentic to come across as authentic. And yeah. I think that's where I derive a lot of my hope as well. And it almost feels like, and I, I've talked to Mike Crawford a lot, I've talked to so many people about this, it almost feels 
like there are better angels of our nature watching over the grassroots community in Massachusetts <laughs> because I cannot account for how we've managed to rack up so many of these wins over the past year, if not for those up above looking down on us. And I mean, you know, those who are no longer with us and maybe some spiritual forces, whatever it may be, but it definitely feels like we're in the hands of forces that are a lot bigger than, ourse than ourselves and that really care about seeing this market truly reflect not only equity, but fairness. Yeah, and I, I agree that, you know, something's watching over for sure, <laughs> or someone or a, a bunch of people, but I know that um, Commissioner Title, um, here we go again, but she she definitely always made sure to highlight that um, in Massachusetts, at least, um, marijuana is a grassroots-led policy. Um, grassroots organizations brought that to vote, um, not the other way around. Usually we see um, legislation and policy enacted by those in power, by those in those stakeholder seats, by the state legislatures. Um, and, and most of the time they do hear that from someone in grassroots, but they present it as, you know, the city of Boston is going to, you know, uh, do this, or the state is going to put this on the ballot, but it was brought forth and driven home and actualized by grassroots um, organizations and policy first. And this is one of the, if not only industries that happen that way, as opposed to the other way around. And it really is so interesting. I've been reading this fascinating book by Doris Kern Goodwin's called uh, Teddy Roosevelt in the Golden Age of American Journalism. And it's about how this woman, it's about a lot of things, but one of the most interesting parts is this woman named Ida Tarbell, who was a journalist uh, that worked for McClure's Magazine in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And her <clears throat> entire life, uh, when she was an adult, was dedicated to using the power of public discourse to prevent corrupt corporate interests from taking over the marketplace. And in her case, it was focusing on oil monopolies. And that was, you know, I think the cannabis industry is intense. Imagine in 1806 with no internet or 1896 <laughs> with no internet trying to track down John D. Rockefeller and his, you know, railroad interests and, and all of that. But anyway, that's where I get a lot of my inspiration because I've seen the power of public discourse in the context of what we're talking about. I've seen it in industries that were built on far more corrupt foundations than the cannabis industry. And that's what gives me a lot of hope because this industry not only is defined today by those grassroots interests, but it's been defined by those grassroots interests for a while. And I actually find it interesting looking at how the corporate interests try to position, position themselves on the chessboard. You know, they've done some things that I really don't like, like the task force bill with um, the Commonwealth Dispensary Association, uh, H4168, that bill failed, uh, or the, the suing to stop the Cambridge equity period. But there's right. also been things that I've liked. And um, I think that kind of positive reinforcement is a good thing as well, because companies that do kind of pick up on it and realize that it's in their best interest to fight for an equitable and fair market end up, in my opinion, being someone the community feels comfortable working with. 
And to that end, um, leadership awards, which is something the commission's been working on for a while. The commission yes. itself, uh, it, we've been talking so much about how to stop negative behavior, but positive reinforcement is important. So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what those leadership awards were designed to do and why recognizing companies who are doing the right thing is so important. Yeah, there's a number of leadership um, awards or um, statuses that the commission has written into our regulations. Um, by the way, for anyone who's listening and hasn't been really um, in tune with the commission, on our website, we are, well, the commission is one of the most transparent uh, uh, government agencies I have ever worked at, ever. Um, and everything that we're talking about now except for like the house and the senate bills live on the commission's website so our regulations and i'm pretty sure the draft regulations are up there so that you can see them and look them up and um if you just press control fine because those regulations are maybe like 70 to 80 pages but if you press control find on your keyboard you can just search around really quickly for anything that we're talking about um especially as we keep um uh, referencing the, the regulations, but um, there's a number of them. One of them is a social equity um, leadership uh, status. One of them is a, um, oh, I lost my word, like a green um, energy um, status. Um, and there's a few more in which um, basically the commission says, especially for like the social, the social justice um, leadership status is say, hey, um, if you, uh, uh, donate 1% of your uh, uh, profits to this, I don't know what we should call it, trust or fund or grant, <laughs> um, the, and, and a number of other things, um, then you are will get like an emblem from the commission identifying that you are a social justice uh, leadership business. And what that does is tell people like me, when I walk by your cannabis business, and that, hey, oh, wow, they support my community. They support those who have been disproportionately impacted. And they're actually putting their money where their mouth is and donating a percentage of their profits um, to those communities and to those um, uh, issues um, and, and going about that the right way, right? So um, there's a number of different uh, leadership awards, as I said. So I think that businesses should, should check them out. And they, um, the commission awards those upon uh, renewal of your business. So the first year, um, you know, you just open and you go. And then as renewal comes, um, you apply for those leadership ratings um, and the commission will, you know, determine if you meet that or not. Um, but I think, like you said, it's a, it's, it's a um, positive reinforcement to do the right thing. And it's another way, um, and, and, and I say this a lot, regardless of um, the programming or the barriers the commission has itself to actualizing the, um, our equity mission, there are lots of things um, that the commission does do to try to make sure that equity is um, an umbrella of this industry. And one, and one of those that we're talking about now is those leadership awards, that positive reinforcement of do the right thing and you're awarded in this way. Um, and then also like we talked about uh, the positive impact plans, the diversity plans, making sure that 
every single business, regardless if you are a big player, a small player, you're a DBE, you're a SEA, a SEA or SE, um, EEA, that you have a positive impact plan that says my business will positively, positively impact these communities or um, these uh, certain demographics in this particular way. Um, and then my business will also hire in these particular ways to make sure that my workforce isn't 75% white males and that I have a diverse workforce on top of, hey, and then when my business gets up and running and I come up for annual renewal, I'll be able to, again, positively reinforce that I do these things by applying for these leadership ratings and showing the commission that I am committed to these things um, and that they can advertise me in a way as this type of business. Yes, entirely agree. It's, it's a carrot and a stick approach, but the carrot, I think, is really amazing because it really does let these companies who are doing the right thing integrate into that. And that was not an intentional pun as to the uh, medical <laughs> recommendation company, but it allows them to integrate into the grassroots community by showing that they're not just saying they're committed, to the values the grassroots community uh, puts up on a pedestal when it comes to equity and fairness, but they're actually taking those steps. So I think that that mechanism is important. Um, and I guess what I, I forget what I was going to ask you. Oh yes, I remember. Um, you brought up positive impact plans. Could you tell us a little bit about the difference between a positive impact plan and a diversity plan? Yes, and um, there's a lot of more detail um, within the regulations. And we also have a course within our social equity program that focuses on what needs to be included in those. Um, if you watch the commission's um, public meetings, I know you probably see Commissioner Flanagan um, and Commissioner Title being like, hold on, <laughs> that's not a good enough plan. Um, and basically it's the commission sets forth um, to actualize our equity mission entirely without within the industry, two sets of different plans, the goals that they have to meet, and then what needs to be um, baked into those plans to make them actual plans. These are all spelled out in the regulations. But um, the positive impact plan um, is focused on the areas of disproportionate impact and the communities disproportionately impacted. And why I separate those is because the commission itself has set uh, geographic locations as areas of disproportionate impact. 29 of them of the 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts um, based on arrest rates um, and uh, other socioeconomic uh, factors. Um, so, uh, and then the communities which we're setting out to um, make sure to have meaningful participation are women, veterans, farmers. And then um, I know we say people of color, but people of color includes people of color that are not disproportionately impacted by, you know, like the war on drugs and the criminalization of marijuana. So specifically, we say African-American uh, and Black um, or uh, Latino, Latinx, um, and making sure that you're reaching those people with whatever programming that you put forth. Now, the commission does um, it doesn't tell you what kind of program to do. So you need to be creative in this space, but this is so that um, you can either 
build an accelerator program like Sarah Naturals, or you can say, hey, you know what, I'm going to find a local um, agency that works with these communities that I'm going to give back to. I'm going to um, build a partnership with this community or this grassroots um, group, let's say in Boston, um, and work with them to build their business or um, just any creative idea outside of, I'm going to give this money to the police, right? <laughs> um, so, so those are the positive impact plans. How are you going to positively impact these communities and these geographic areas that have been disproportionately impacted by arrest rates or other socioeconomic factors due to the war on drugs and due to the criminalization of weed? Um, your diversity plan is not how you're going to impact um, these groups. It's completely separate, even though diversity, your diversity impact uh, plan is an impact plan on these groups because you're thinking of a way internally. So your positive impact plan is something your your business is going to do externally. Your diversity plan is something that your business is going to do internally. So internally, my business is going to hire a diverse staff. How are we going to do that? We're going to have job, um, you know, job we're going to place job ads in these particular areas. We're going to do um, job expos or conferences or, or whatever it may be. But how are you going to do diversify your staff internally and then show the commission how you're going to do that? And then these two plans um, and then the uh, metrics that you put forth to the commission will be reviewed and evaluated on your annual renewal. Well, thank you. I. I thought I knew something about the difference. I, I now understand I knew next to nothing. So I really appreciate that. Um, so we, we've definitely broken my record for the longest interview I've ever done, which is awesome. I talk so much. No, no goodness. It's so informational. We're, we're all so grateful um, here at the Young Jerks, myself personally. Um, and you've got about five minutes. So uh, before we go, I'll ask you two questions. Uh, the first is, um, I was going to play the video clip for you, uh, but I couldn't make it work, as you know, to play it for you <laughs> and the audience. So I'm just going to ask you about it. Um, two weeks ago, we had Commissioner Title uh, on the show. Uh, no matter how much she uh, doesn't want me to call her Commissioner Title, I'm going to call her Commissioner Title because she's not here to stop me. Um, so. Uh, we had Commissioner Title on the show, and at the end uh, of the show, I asked her um, about you, and I asked her um, her thoughts on you leaving, and, and she had some very, very powerful words that clearly reflects, I think, the deep bond that you two developed over your work to basically set up what is the nation's first equity structure in cannabis licensing, and it almost brings me uh, to the verge of not being able to talk when I realize <laughs> how amazing it is to, to be among you all and to be able to, to hear your stories and share your voice with the world. Um, I wanted to give you some time to talk about her because I know you mentioned that you know the equity program was like her baby that you raised, but I know you two had a relationship that was deeper uh, than just that. So anything you want to say, any remarks you have about her or any of the commissioners, please, I'd love to hear them. Woo! I don't know where to start with Commissioner Title. Um, I had a going away um, party <laughs> uh, virtually for the commission, and I promise you that we all sobbed the entire time. So that's just testament to 
um, the relationships I built at the commission to begin with, but with commissioner title at times, and I'm going to try not to cry now because at times um, commissioner title has been the only pillar of support, uh, the only resource. And I mean, I would go in her office and I'd be bawling and I'd be like, look at this and ah, and she just like sits with me. We talk, we, we conspire <laughs> um, to get things done. And I text her, I'm just like, why is this not happening? And I text her and she's just like, what can we do? How can we make this? How can we actualize this? How can we make this work? Who do I need to speak to? And she's just, and I know you've seen it and, and many people see it. She is a, she's just, she's everything. She is equity at the commission. She is it. And there is no way that I could have done any of this one without her, without her equity policy before I even knew of the commission coming before my desk. Um, and just the person that she is, the dedication that she has, and the um, willingness to, to, to be shot down four to one, to be shot down, to be belittled, to be um, condescended, like receive condescending um, remarks about the smallest ask for equity and to keep going and to, to, to maintain, um, you know, not just that public face, but that dedication to it, to be attacked by the public internally, externally, and to still keep going and to, to, to stand firm and strong in everything she does. And I, a hundred percent love her and and she's like a, fr a friend of mine and i call her commissioner title so and and i call her cti i think i might be the only person that calls her that just so i wouldn't call her commissioner title or chalene so i just say hey ct um but um i love her and i appreciate her dearly i appreciate everything that she has done and that she will continue to do in the face of um equity um but also in the face of resistance um she listens a hundred percent she you know even if she is against something it's always because she's like wait what about this idea it's not like that sucks and we're not doing that um and i just can't like she said i just can't ever put into words what she means to me and what she means to the commission and to the community um and what she means to equity in this space and and beyond this space right um i'm speechless like i just i just love her <laughs> well I'm compromising my journalistic objectivity, but I can tell you I have a list of three people I think that could be president. Um, Big Mama, yourself, and Commissioner Title. So if, if the three of you want to combine somehow and have a tripartite presidency, you, all three of you have my votes. Um, Commissioner Title, it's, I don't even, I'm almost speechless. I don't know how to put into words my reverence for not only yourself, but her, uh, the work that you both have done. I don't know if folks understand the weight of the insight. When I said earlier that you two are the people that built this equity structure with, with Chanel's help, of course, without question. Absolutely. Um, you, got, you folks built this equity structure. You fought for it. You've protected it. And 
it comes through in your passion. It comes through in your knowledge. And I'm talking about all, all, both of you and Chanel and everyone else involved. It comes through in your reverence for fairness. And it, it comes through in your commitment to communities that you perhaps haven't even engaged with one-on-one. -on -one. You know what equity means more than just what it is as a term on paper. And that's right. such a rare commodity. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost on the verge of tears. I'm honored to have been able to <laughs> chat with you. Oh, well, I'm honored as well. Thank you so much. Um, again, I can't thank everyone enough. There's a lot of people at the commission um, who, who also, you know, like, like I shouted out the legal team, um, uh, Matt, he's our constituent services director. Um, David Lakeman, he is our government affairs director. Um, Dave McKenna, um, he is our IT uh, our uh, director basically. And there's so many, many more. Allie, right now in our position, and, and this is what I wanted to say before I go, I wanna make sure to say this before I go. Um, Alyssa Flores. She came on in January as a project coordinator for the social equity program. It was the first time I got a team member added to focus directly on programming and to help me in my role. And right now she is fulfilling my role um, in my departure. And I wanna make sure to highlight her because she is going to now need the resources and the support that I needed in that position. And I want to make sure to highlight exactly what those are um, because equity is not a job for one person or two people um, and it's a job for the entire commission. Um, and so we talked internally um, as the whole commission about um, a cross-functional equity team from all of the departments, but there needs to be a team itself. We broke out my former role into five separate positions. That's how much work we were what I was doing and then Alyssa came on to alleviate some of that and now she's in that same position so um, I think focusing on and if you want make your voice heard at the commission um, like Commissioner Title did at that last public meeting saying we need to increase the um, budget for the social equity program so that we could hire and train the staff necessary and one of those persons is you know just having someone oversee all of it but having someone that's only focused on focused on outreach. Outreach is a program of itself. It's a role of itself. Um, it's important that it's not just outreach for the program. Having someone who's only focused on the social equity program, having some, and then more programming for that group. Having someone who's only focused on economic empowerment and then meeting them where they are and creating more programming um, for them in that group. And then having someone who's focused on communications, even though that's outreach, but I mean, um, I mean, like our uh, our voice of the commission, and I'm not sure if you follow the commission on social media, but you don't really hear of uh, uh, or see um, a lot of equity communications. It's you know, it's just an overall like, hey, you know, this is out or this role is public, but it's not um, directly for or meeting the equity communities that we need to meet. Um, and then um, there's well, that one person that will oversee all of that. So definitely. Um, and then another person that focuses on research. Um, we do have a research team, but they're doing research for the cannabis industry overall. Um, they can't 
only focus on equity in the industry when there's so much uh, data that um, didn't even exist prior to legalization or decriminalization of marijuana. So they have big shoes and roles to fill and we need focus on those who can, who can just separate that research into equity um, and having uh, research that supports why we need more program, why we need more staff, why we need bigger budgets for this. Um, so I just wanted to make sure to shout out Alyssa Flores um, and then make sure to highlight those positions and those resources that we would need to have better actualization and more success of our social equity programs, but our equity mission overall. Well, that's amazing for two reasons, uh, one of which because all of that was extremely important and very relevant information. And the second aspect was because I was going to ask you what you wanted to leave us with and you <laughs> read my mind, preempted me and gave us a perfect close. Um, so Shakia Scott, former outreach director and head of social equity programming for the Cannabis Control Commission, on behalf of the Young Jerks, our community, our audience, myself personally, Mike Crawford, the founder uh, of the Young Jerks, thank you for spending this time with us. It felt like 10 minutes. It was over <laughs> two hours. Uh, I think I learned more from this interview than any other interview that I've done. Uh, so I cannot thank you enough. I hope uh, that this will be the first of many interviews we get to do with you. I know you have a lot more I can imagine you want to tell us. So uh, maybe we'll get you on a panel. Uh, maybe we'll get you and Commissioner Title one day to do an interview. But uh, oh, I, that would be awesome. That was amazing. Uh, everyone, you've been watching The Young Jerks. It is 5.06 p.m. on July 20th, 2020. We have just had the longest interview I've ever done as a host of The Young Jerks with Shakina Scott. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We learned a lot. This will be made available on our Facebook page, on our videos tab. It will also be made available as a podcast on our Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and anywhere else where your podcasts are found. Uh, if you'd like to find more written content from The Young Jerks, you can find us at midnightmass.substack.com, or you can find our articles published in Dig Boston. Uh, thank you, as always, to UFCW 1445 and to everyone who supports the Young Jerks. Without you guys, this show would not exist. Voices, uh, the voices of so many of the guests that you see would not be possible. And I cannot tell you how much it means to me to wake up every day and be a part of this community. Uh, it really gives me meaning behind my life uh, as a disabled person, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, so Shakia, I'll ask you to stay with us for just a minute while I play the outro ad, and I hope you all enjoy the rest of your very hot summer evening. The Young Jerks are sponsored by UFCW 1445, a labor union representing cannabis employees in Massachusetts. Currently, UFCW is holding a union election at NETA New England Treatment Access in Brookline, as well as at Mayflower. If you are a cannabis employee worried about your health and safety and are not being heard at work, call the union at UFCW local 1445.org or call them at 1-800-439-1445.